The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, you can listen to us every Wednesday, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and we are live, but at the end of the day, we archive the show so that you can listen to it in perpetuity. Uh, this morning, I have two guests. My first guest is uh, Gregory Hartley, author of How to Spot a Liar, Why People Don't Tell the Truth and How You Can Catch Them which is uh, great to, I think it's a good topic right now in the context of this presidential election. Um, our guest, uh, Gregory Hartley, is a, uh, he's had a lot of experience in this area. He's a decorated former U.S. Army interrogator, graduated from the U.S. Army Interrogation School and the Anti-Terrorism Instruction Qualification Course. He's done all kinds of things. I'm not even going to read his whole bio, but he is an expert in the field of how to spot a liar and why people don't tell the truth and how you can catch them. Uh, my second guest for uh, on the show is going to be a uh, she's a, an executive coach, Ora Stoll, and her new book is The Glass Elevator, and she writes about uh, glass elevators and women in leadership positions and how they can get there and stop trying to shatter the glass ceiling. There are less hazarded way, less hazardous ways to get to the top. But first, Gregory Hartley uh, here to talk about his book, How to Spot a Liar. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Great to have you. Okay, well, how to spot a liar. Uh, before we get into the whole, because I want to talk about the election and how to spot liars, because I think we have a lot of lying and a lot of stuff going on. But your new book, and I know you had written a book, How to Spot a Liar, but this is the revised edition. So um, what, who needs this book? What's it about? Well, I mean, obviously, is... you have a revised edition. you got a lot of people who are reading the uh, the uh, first book. Yeah, you know, I've, I've written eight altogether, including this one. This is has been our bestseller because it's written with a broad general audience in mind. Anyone who is breathing can use this book because it's about dealing with other people. And when, it, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I wrote the first book, of course, you think, will I ever write another? So you try to cram everything possible into that first book. So the revision is about taking it down the path toward looking for ways to detect deception more accurately. We took critiques from readers who said, hey, I'd like to know more about this, and actually went down that path. And Career Press is really good about letting us go back and, and revise the book to adjust to our readers. Uh, well, that's right. So who are those readers? We, okay, we want to know how to t- spot a liar. How do we use it? In what context do we use it when we want to? How about a cheating spouse? That's one uh, example I can think of. Absolutely. Uh, from... uh, yeah, cheating spouse. I mean, car dealers. <laughs> you, <laughs> a used car dealer, a cheating spouse, a child, a coworker, a boss. We even talk about how to do salary negotiations, everything else in this book. This book is around how a person's brain works, what they're doing, how you can read their body language a bit, how to look for 
one of the this several lie types, as I refer to omission, commission, embellishment, and transference, looking at each of those lies, why people do those, and how to break each of the lies individually. We all lie every day. I mean, people lie about small things that don't matter. When you ask me how I'm doing, no one really wants to hear how you're doing. That's a, that's a socially polite thing to ask. And the is that what we call lie. a little white lie? I mean, yeah. is that it? And so that's yeah. okay? Yeah, and even, you know, socially engineered lies. How are you today? Fine. Well, we're both lying. I don't really care how you're doing, and you really don't want to hear what yeah, How about really it's, it's nice that. to have you on the show today? Was I lying? <laughs> no. Well, you know, it, those are social, they're social lies. It's not that we're really worried about how the person's doing. It's a politeness. Are there people we really do care about? Yes. And in that case, we don't want to hear fine. In, in your job as a social worker, obviously, you don't want to hear someone cover that up. But there are times that it's appropriate to lie. I always say the best lie is, do these pants make my rear end look large? Well, you better know the answer to that. <laughs> right? oh, no know the, yeah, we know the, I know the answer to that. Yeah, and, and all of us who have any sense know the answer to that. And it's not that, does my hair look worse as it recedes? Well, you know the answer to that. We all know the answer to that polite lie of protection of the person's ego. So there are places for appropriate lies, and then there's a wrong time to lie. And that's all about entitlement in relationship, and we talk a bit about that in the book as well. Well, let's talk about how it, when it kind of slips into, I mean, you've, you've talked about the, the white lies, the, you know, does, do I look fat in this, or is my rear end look big, or whatever. We know what to say in those situations, or how are you doing this morning, we don't really care. But when does it, it doesn't go from that to, like, the lies that perhaps some of our presidential candidates are talking about, or lying on Wall Street about uh, the monies that they're investing right. for us. Isn't there kind of a slippery, slippery slope? At what point does it get to, well, like, we need to really kind of be on our toes about who's lying because it's important that they don't lie? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Kind of, I, I yeah. think what you're talking about, Catherine, is entitlement. We all have entitlement in our life. And even in a relationship, we know where the line is. For someone to not tell you all the truth about certain things is okay, about how their day went yesterday, about what they spent their time doing, as long as it doesn't include someone who violated your entitlement. That's where the line is drawn. And that's, that's what you're talking about with politics, with finance, with all of those. There's an entitlement stated in each of those relationships, and we expect a certain amount of veracity or honesty in those situations. The odd part to me is very few of us in our personal lives go about setting up the same kind of entitlement and contract as we do in those day-to-day grind things because we trust the people who are closest to us. When it comes to politicians, my standard rule is don't trust them because they have to keep 51% of the people happy, and they're going to lie. It's just the nature of the job. They're going to have truth. They're going to deviate from the question. They're going to redirect the question. And if you, every one of our politicians has lied to us about something, it's just the nature of the business. Uh, it's the nature of the business, but how on top of it do we have to be, and how, what should we be observing when we are listening to them telling us what they're going to do for us, what they're going to do for our constituents, for our country? Uh, so how aware should we be about what they're lying about uh, Agreed, yeah. And I think what you have to look at is right now, you know, about the elephant in the room, we're talking about two of the most, two of the biggest divergent politicians running for president that we've had in recent times. You'd probably have to go back to Carter and Reagan to find people who were more divergent. Most of the, more recently, the argument could easily be made we've, we've run more centrist who have different views on certain things. But these two guys are dramatically divergent in their views. They're polar opposites. Yeah, and, and this is a bigger debate than even the lie piece. This is a, a debate about, well, if they were both honest, 
they both believe, as you said, they're both polar opposites. One is is more about government playing a larger role. One is about government playing a, smart, a smaller role. And as they stand in front of people, they're going to hedge more than is normal. And I, I've actually, to be honest, and, you know, I, I am a, first of all, I am a very socially liberal person and very fiscally conservative, which is an odd mix. It makes it hard to vote, as <laughs> you can imagine. But Are you an indi- I, Well, you don't have to answer this, but you, you sound perhaps an independent, but who knows? Okay, go on. Yeah, so I, I would call myself an independent. I mean, you get to a point you have to make decisions based on what you believe fiscally or the other way, and I'm very conservative in terms of, of my spending thoughts. So most soldiers, by the way, fit in that category. You know, I wouldn't say most soldiers are Republicans. I'd say they're more libertarians and believe in individual freedoms. And so as you look at this, this becomes to me more about are they being honest about what they believe. And you're going to have to pay attention to what they say. And in some cases, that politeness about how they say it is the awkward piece. If you look at what's going on with Romney today, Romney is defending something that he said that probably – he believes and should have said out loud somewhere else. He's, if anything, he's defending saying it in private. And I would say the same thing is probably true of, of Obama. He has said things in the past that he probably should have said out loud and aggressively. These two guys believe something entirely different. It would be refreshing to see two politicians say exactly what they think. So what, when we're looking at the debates, which are coming up soon, what should, we, what should we, we be looking for? Well, interestingly, there are debates, there's no teleprompter, so you get more of the person than you would normally get. When they're standing in front of a, a podium and delivering a speech from a teleprompter, it's difficult to see who they are. I, I tell people all the time to look for their eye movement when they ask a question, to look and see if something's prepared, if they prepared their statement, or if they're thinking through it. And I'm going to give you an example of eye movement. The book goes into much more detail. But everyone listening, relax, let your eyes do what they normally do as you answer this question. And I can, with about 90% likelihood, predict what your eyes have done. What's the fifth word of the Star Spangled Banner? And you should have gotten the word C. Uh Your eyes, with 90% likelihood, drifted slightly up into your left before they drifted down for you to count the, the words. What that means for you is that you're playing a tape in your head for something you've heard. And that means that your normal, your baseline for body language, is for you to go slightly up into your left as you access your left temporal lobe listening to a sound. 10% of the population go the other way. Well, what we know is if you, if you can establish a baseline for a person, you can look and see when they're deviating from the norm. So when these guys stand there and you ask them a question that requires them to answer off the cuff, they should be going the opposite way of something they recall. If they have prepared their statements you can look and they'll always go back to their memory piece, in this case, upper left. So, for example, that piece of body language would tell you whether they've prepared everything and they're going to deliver speech or whether they're simply answering questions off the cuff. I prefer to hear a candid answer. Regardless of your political standing, you, you hope that the people you're listening to are giving you candid answers. Well, I'm going to be looking for that because, boy, you were right on target. I was thinking when you asked me the question, you know, what's the fifth word in the Star Spangled Banner? That's exactly what I did. I, I supposed to. Yeah. So, uh, so we're all fairly consistent, I guess, when it comes to that. I mean, that's what you're saying in your book, obviously, in terms of how, when we tell the truth and when we lie. So that's one of the things we should be looking for. And then, but these candidates are all prepared, aren't they? I mean, they. I mean, they're coached. They are coached. As a matter of fact, I, I often am surprised when I, I refer to them as handlers. I'm often surprised when I see someone have a meltdown that their handlers have not taken better care of them. Well, I think in this case you have two very intelligent, super intelligent 
men. No doubt. Uh, it happens to be. But anyway, so they have, an, I think, a certain advantage in that. I mean, I may be wrong. I mean, this, is, it, is that true? Like, the smarter you are, the more it's easy it is to fool people? Or is that not true? Well, is it I, emotional it, and not intelligent? Right. Well, you can be very intelligent and still make huge mistakes. If you think about white to gray matter, I often say, for a person to be able to deceive, they need a higher white to gray matter ratio. And when we think of gray and white matter, gray matter you think of as computers, white matter is network. It's how we interrelate thoughts and ideas, the white matter is. So as a person can interrelate things much better, they can change topics, they can move nuance of conversation, they make much better liars than people who are just sheer information and knowledge-driven intelligence. So the, the more social, Bill Clinton, great, great liar, as he looked into the camera and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Good indicators in everything he said because he distanced from the question before he actually made the statement. He clarified specifically my favorite part of his entire lie. That woman, not any of dozens of others that might come up later, but that woman. And you have to love that kind of a lie because he, he was believable to a lot of people. Now, for me, I sat watching him and said, really? Someone, some handler should have gotten a hold of you. But the, the more social a person is, the easier it is for them to lie. I, I, while both of these people, I think, are very intelligent, I think both of them have a bit of an aloofness to them that Bill Clinton is, doesn't have. Bill Clinton connects with people on a, on a much better level. Yeah, watch, I, think I agree with you. Very different kinds of orders. Uh, these two presidential candidates are, are both... Uh, they do distance themselves. They're more... I don't know if they're, they're not more cerebral, but you're right. They're, they're less social, and, and they're similar in that way. Yeah, it's interesting that we all poke on them, but you look, and you were dead on. They're polar opposites, but they have common commonality in that they're not very warm in front of the camera. They're not very – they don't connect. As I often say, Bill Clinton was a flirt, and I don't mean that in the sexual sense of being a flirt with women. He's a flirt with everyone. He closes space between himself and everyone he talks to. Many of my peers in, in the intelligence world that I worked with and taught – um, body language and that too have met him, and while they really don't like Bill Clinton politically, they thought he was the, the greatest person they'd ever met. Yeah, he's. A, I've seen him speak. I've been to uh, lectures and been up close, and not necessarily personal, but that's so true. He just has that ability to engage you, and uh, he, like he's your best friend, or he's your boyfriend, or whatever he is. But he has a relationship with you. And you feel like he has a relationship with you. You don't feel that way with these two presidential candidates. But I don't care necessarily. Right. Um, okay, so let's get back to the book, though. Um, what about now? Just in our daily lives, forget about the presidential candidates, cheating spouses. Uh, you also mentioned the book, manipulative bosses, people that we have to deal with on every day. Is my boss lying to me? Uh, these are kind of the practical lies or the people that we're confronted with every day. Let's talk about them. Yeah, so cheating spouses, typically, like I said, lies fall into one of four categories. They're either a lie of omission, and omission simply means I leave out details. A lie of commission, which means I make it up from plain cloth. A lie of embellishment, which means I make something better than it was. The fish was five pounds, not two pounds. Or transference, which is where I take facts from someone else's life and put those in my life. Most lies of cheating are around omission. Most people are going to omit or commit meaning that if you ask them a question about what they did today, they're going to say, I went to see my brother, and then I went home. Well, they left out the part where they went next door to the brother, and there's a young lady that they had something going with. So those words, and then, are tools for them to jump over a, a period of time. 
That doesn't mean, by the way, that every time a person says, and then they're lying, but what it means is that they've omitted something, typically. There's a guy named Jack Schaefer who is one of the original profilers who helped catch many serial killers and that for the FBI, who has written um, a book and quite a bit of information around that verbal bridging and some of those tools for getting around omission of time. And that piece of data, that piece of information is valuable when you're listening for what someone did during the day. You also look for things like conditioning the question. When, when you ask a person, did you see Susie? See Susie? What do you mean by see? You know, or they answer the question, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. They distance from the actual answer. You that sounds more like lawyer talk. Lawyers do that. Yeah, well, they do, absolutely. Yeah. Lawyers condition the question so they can answer it in a way that's meaningful for them. And often people do the same thing when they're in a bind. I mean, if you've, if you've had children, you know, children will answer exactly what you ask, you know, binary in, binary out. And if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. That's something you have to watch for in people who are trying to deceive you. All right, so those are two examples. Uh, omission, uh, this embellishing. Uh, what else? What else do we look for? In well, in lies of commission, where most lies break apart, Catherine, is that most people don't realize their life is a series of snapshots. And if you look in a photo album in, in old days or you look at someone's Flickr account or something a day, and you notice they have all of these pages of photos that tie together in some way. Well, lies of commission are when someone makes something up out of whole cloth. When they make something up out of whole cloth, they forget all the details. In my days of teaching resistance to interrogation, I primarily worked with Special Forces, Delta Force, Marines, Navy SEALs, those kinds of guys. And we put them through the course as interrogators to teach them what to do if they're captured. Well, I would ask questions from these guys all the time about their families. And the funniest thing in the world, every one of these guys would tell me their parents died when they were eight years old in the car wreck. You know, either one of two things is true. Either they're making that up or we are recruiting from orphanages, one of the two. We never figured that out. But So as you start poking on these guys, you realize that they all are protective of family. And they've not thought of all the details about what kind of car was it, what day of the week was it, what did you do after, did you ever drive past that intersection. And this is just one example. Think about every lie that you've been told. If you were to ask supporting details, not the big stuff, but all the little details. Oh, really, you went to your brother's and then you went home. What time did you get to your brother's? Well, I got to my brother's at X. Well, if you got to your brother's at X, then you stayed for two hours. That means you came home at Y. Well, where's the other 45 minutes? You sound, Gregory, exactly. I had a father who was a trial attorney, and most of my listeners know this by now. And when I was a kid or a teenager, that's exactly how he interrogated me. Well, you went out for ice cream with, you know, with Joe, and then, yeah, and then we came home. Well, what time did you go out, he would say. And then, well, there's a discrepancy. There was, oh, you know, a half an hour discrepancy in your time. Uh, and uh, he did that very well. I mean, I had to, I had, I had real practice with this, so uh, I know exactly what you're saying. Well, and, you know, I, since I left the military, my, I, I had a job as a project manager for quite a while, building buildings before I started writing books. And I learned about something called forward and backward pass in project management. When you're talking to someone you think is lying to you about a time frame, ask their story backwards. Now, you know, you don't say, tell me about that backwards. You start asking questions backward. Oh, you got home about 6 p.m. What time did you leave Joe's house? And you walk through that backward. Most people are not devious or deceptive enough to practice a lie backward. That's the reason we say a person knows their story forward and backward. Got it. That's a great tip. That's a that, great tip for your teen when you're dealing with your teenage kids, when you're dealing with your cheating husband, your cheating spouse, let's say. Uh that works re- I mean that's that's a great technique to use, I think. Helpful to our listeners. Um who else? 
Well, yeah, everyone, when I'm sitting across the table from you, we talked about eye movement just a minute ago. If I'm talking to you about salary <clears throat> and I ask you how much uh, you expect or how much you're making now, then you're going to have to go into your head to, to look at numbers. If you're hedging the numbers, you're going to go to a different place than if you're actually recalling. The same thing works when you're sitting across the table from your boss. Let's say, or across the table from someone you're, you're trying to sell something to. Let's say you ask the person how much the job can possibly pay. You would expect them to access a visual or an auditory cue as they recall what was put in the budget by their HR department or by whoever. And that would be a, a left eye movement. So, for example, if I'm going to ask you a visual cue and watch your eyes and pay attention to what they do again. They'll go higher in your head this time than last, but they'll still go in your head. From where you're sitting to the nearest Wendy's, what would be the directions to get there? What's at the first turn? Would I turn right or left? What would I see? And if you pay attention to what your eyes do, if you ask questions for directions, a person's eyes are going to go above the brow ridge and still back to the left or right, whichever is normal for them. When you ask a question that forces a person to have an internal conversation, like hedging about how much money they have in the account, hedging about how much money they have to buy something, hedging about how much money they have set up for a pay raise for you, there's a calculation, and your eyes are going to drop down into your left. Pay attention as you do this. Try to calculate 15% of 980 without rounding and watch what your eyes do. So if you're applying for a job and you're asking these questions of your potential employer, this is really something to keep in mind. I mean, Absolutely. It gives yeah. you an opportunity to tell whether a person's calculating or whether they're just recalling. Now, oddly enough, when you're watching those politicians in October, pay attention to their eyes as they ask a question. If their eyes drift down into their left, they're calculating. They're having an internal conversation. They're actually thinking about how they should navigate that question. If they go up and left, they're rattling off something they've recalled. If they go down and right, it's an emotional thing for them. Now, Greg, you mentioned uh, you know um, the eye mo- movement, but there are also other physiological things to look for too, isn't it? What you do with your hands, your feet, how you Absolutely. cross your legs. I mean, all of those kinds of things mean something as well. I know as a social worker, if I'm talking to a, a client and uh, you know whatever the problem may be, an addiction problem, I'm asking them how often they drink. I mean, there are all kinds of things that come up, you know, when they're lying, and and, and a lot of that has to do with body language. Yeah, and it, Catherine, it's all tied to fight or flight, which is a wonderful thing about humans that we're still as primitive as all of our animal cousins. None of that's changed. <clears throat> we get to the point that there are really only four real pieces of body language we're talking about. I'm, I'm a baseliner. Other people are absolutists. Some absolutists will tell you this means X when a person crosses their body. I'll tell you to look for deviation. Those four pieces are adapters, and adapters are nothing more than releasing nervous energy, whether it's stroking your hair, rubbing your thigh like a baseball player standing in the batter's box, whether it is tugging at your fingernails or anything that releases nervous energy, that's an adapter. It means that you're trying to take control of your environment, much like any animal in a cage will pace to try to get some control over their environment. But shaking your foot, I often notice that when people are not telling the truth or they're uncomfortable about their answers, they start shaking their foot. Yeah, and, and I tell people all the time, I worked a lot with 25-year-old men. They always shake their foot. So then I look for a deviation that means their foot stops shaking. So you look for deviations, what you're looking for, right? Then barriers are crossing your torso, putting something between you and another person. That means I need more space. If that's your norm, that's your norm. Some people stand with their arms crossed all the time. That's just their norm. I, one of my favorites is to go to a place where you see people dating. A young man, a young woman walk into a place, 
and the woman picks up her purse and puts it on the table between them. Well, there's a barrier, and that date is effectively over. I often say to people, it's a bad sign. When people need space, they're going to find a way to get it, whether it's sitting behind a desk, holding up a bag, holding a bottle, peeling a label. That's a barrier. And How about that, texting on your iPhone when you sit down and you both reach for your iPhone and, and that's the end of the conversation? Yeah, well, it can be, for sure. And, you know, that's such a habit in our, in our population now that you have to look for what's normal for that group. The younger a person is, the more they're liable to do that. But if, if the conversation is going pretty well and then suddenly they pick it up, it's a bad sign. That's why I say you look for deviation in baseline. Then illustrators are hand movement. You, it can be, if you've ever watched like O'Reilly on the news, he uses his eyebrows as, as the way he <laughs> illustrates. But you use an illustrator to punctuate your thoughts. It can be hands, feet, head. It can be batoning, you know, like a person whipping you. Driving home their point through illustrators. Look for deviation in those as well, because when something slows down or speeds up, it means something has changed in the person's mind, and that's what you're looking for. And then finally, regulators, the way we control conversation, putting your fingers to your lips, rolling your finger forward, saying hurry up, dragging your finger across your throat. All those things mean something as well, but they're not usually as indicative in catching a liar unless they're in a real bind. So you look for deviation because fight or flight causes that. There are other things that fight or flight causes as well. When a person's really busted and they know it, pupil dilation under high stress is a good indicator. There's a ton of body language associated with fight or flight that you can learn and look for in a person who's really busted. I mean, some of the simple things, people, that, that just a change in their skin tone, like blushing, although oh, yeah. they don't have to go to a full blush, but just a little bit sometimes. Doesn't that make a difference? Uh, and you can, and you can, and even sweating a little bit, not necessarily profusely, but just you can tell that they're, I mean, that's maybe the most, that's obvious, you know, more oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And fight or flight is nothing. When you get to that blushing piece, you're getting parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems fighting back and forth, trying to take control. And, you know, there's a lot of symptoms you can recognize from outside. That's face flushing, face going pale. When a person gets into heightened fight or flight, their face is going to go pale. The cool thing about our culture, about history, is all this stuff is captured in sayings from our past. We just don't think about it. Like lily-faced liar, liver, or, or lily-livered liar, those kinds of things. All of those things, thin lip lies, all of those are tied up in fight or flight. People knew this in the past. It's just we blunted ourselves to it, I believe. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, and I just want to mention one more thing because we've been talking about kind of the visuals when you, you know, in terms of observing people and being able to tell whether they're lying or not. But you know, being on the radio, I'm listening to people's voices. I have no visuals, but I also can tell, you know, in tr- not all the time. And obviously, I'm not the expert. You are, but you know, after you do it for a while, you really get a sense of whether someone's telling you the truth just by the quality of their voice. Maybe it's a split second that it takes them to respond that otherwise a little bit longer than you would normally right. expect all of those kinds of things, and that all fits into the picture of being able to distinguish who's lying and who's not. Well, the three big ones for you, and I, I, you'll notice I use threes are easy to remember. It's, when yeah. you're teaching, it's really easy to remember. <laughs> Pitch, tone, and cadence are the big three, right? Pitch is really easy. John Lovitz made a career out of, yeah, 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 my wife, you know, changing his voice when he was lying. He started that in the 80s, and it's been part of his act the entire time. We recognize when a person is in fight or flight and their vocal cords get more strident and tightened, that's an indicator that something's changed. And it's usually an indicator of deception. That's pitch. Tone, we all can finish the sentence. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. So we know that's important in our conversation as well. When a person's tone changes, it means something. Dig for why. And then finally, cadence, you're dead on. I talk pretty fast for a guy from the South. If I slow down, it's to make a point or I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking and shouldn't be, 
there's a problem. Yeah, that's the red light. Great having you on the show today. My pleasure. I learned a lot. I know my listeners did too as well, and I want to mention your book again, How to Spot a Liar, Why People Don't Tell the Truth and How You Can Catch Them. Gregory Hartley, I have to have you on the show again. Uh, Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Coming up next is Ora Stuhl. She is author of The Glass Elevator, a guide to leadership presence for women on the rise. So don't go away. She's an executive coach. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you struggling to find hope in the middle of adversity? How confident are you in dealing with your life challenges? Do you realize you have the ability to overcome your obstacles? You'll want to tune in to Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities. Louise will speak to inspiring guests who have helped others or managed to overcome the roadblocks that stood in the way of their life success. Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities broadcasts live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can listen to us live every week from 10 to 11 uh, on World Talk Radio and VoiceAmerica.com. And we archive the show at the end of the day, and then you can listen to it whenever you want. Uh, my second guest uh, today is Ora Stoll. She's author of The Glass Elevator, A Guide to Leadership Presence for Women on the Rise. She's been uh, a professor of business communication at NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, she's an executive coach, and she practices in New York City. And she's going to talk to us in relation to her book that uh, one of the things that uh, she says is that women should stop trying to shatter the glass ceiling. Welcome to the show, Aura. Nice to have you on this morning. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this is, is this is a new concept. What are we what are we talking about here? The the glass elevator. 
we want to take a glass elevator instead of trying to shatter the glass ceiling. What does that mean? <laughs> yes, well, we've all heard about the glass ceiling, right? I have always found this analogy kind of funny. Uh, women are smart enough to know that breaking through glass is actually dangerous business. And in any event, whether you believe there is a barrier for women in the workplace or not, I believe there's an easier and safer way to rise professionally, and I call it the glass elevator. And a glass elevator has the nine must-have skills to get you where you want to go. And one of the things I love about my analogy is that we women have different destinations. We can get off at different points, right? We're riding with other people. Our vision expands. We get clarity and understanding. Uh, so we all take the elevator in a different way, but it's a sure and safe way to get you where you want to go. I have to ask you this, and I, I don't know where it came from. Do you know where that, that whole concept of the glass ceiling came from originally? I'm not sure where it came from, but I think it's time to kiss it goodbye and to ride the glass elevator instead. Yeah, it does seem like a lot more, a lot safer ride. Yeah. Um, okay, so how, how did you come up with the glass elevator? I mean, this whole concept, I know obviously you've had a lot of ex- uh, experience. You've been teaching in the business school at NYU. You're an executive coach with, what, Fortune 500 companies? Mm-hmm. Fortune 100 uh, companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fortune 100 companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you have had a lot of experience with women in these Fortune uh, 100 companies. Um, and, um, you know, just sort of, I mean, I haven't had uh, obviously a lot of the same mm-hmm. kinds of experiences that you had, but women, it seems, and don't do too well in these companies. For some, They're not riding the glass elevator. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, first let me say that I've been an executive coach for both men and women um, in many of New York's leading companies. And it's precisely because I've been a coach to both, to both that I've seen that women have some particular and unique challenges in the workplace. Um, and they, I've become extremely dedicated, passionate about helping women soar professionally. What's happened over my 20 years in coaching is that it's become very clear to me what it takes to succeed professionally. And I've created my own model called the Leadership Presence Coaching Model that identifies the nine skills that you need to succeed professionally. All right, but before we do the nine skills, or what are the unique challenges for women? That's what I like to – why is it different for women? Right, well, to reach the top. And, you, and here's another question because somebody said to me – they asked me this question when I, I said I was going to be interviewing you this morning, the C-suite. What's that? We're trying to reach that. What is the C-suite? Uh, well, some, some of us are. Not all of us are. Okay. C, uh, C stands, for, stands for chief. So any position uh, that starts with chief, chief executive, chief operate, operating officer, uh, CFO, chief financial officer, that, that's the C-suite. Right. Uh, well, let me, let me address some of those challenges. Um, women will often sit at the meeting table but not speak up at the meeting table as frequently as men. Uh, women often neglect their networking, right? We're so busy, and sometimes it's the first thing to go. Uh, women do have trouble tooting their own horns. So these are a few of the unique challenges that we have in the workplace, generally speaking. So where do you think those come from? I mean, do we have to, I mean, you give us the how-tos, how to address those particular challenges, and I agree with you. Yeah, we're sitting at the meeting where all the top people, you know, head honchos are, but then we don't say anything. Um, that's true. Or, yeah, it's 
just takes too much time after work to do networking because you got to get home and be with the kids. You've got other things to do that are more important, but they're not when it comes to your work. But do we have to understand how we got there? I mean, you know, in order for us to make the changes that you suggest in the book? Right. There, there are many, many reasons why we are what we are. Um, there, there's decades and decades of cultural history uh, that we can address. But as an executive coach, my job is not to kind of look through the rearview mirror. My job is to look through the front, right, L- look forward and to see how women succeed and to help them do so. My focus okay. is on action. Action, a clear roadmap for women to be to grow and to become leaders. In- Absolutely. Okay. So mm-hmm. let's take a look. We'll look forward. We're not going to look back. I'm a social worker. I guess I'm the one who we look back. Right. My sister's out. a therapist, so she yeah. looks back. I look forward. And between us, we've got the perfect match. Exactly. All right. So let's take it forward. How do you help women with, you mentioned three different issues, unique issues, unique challenges that we have that are different than men. Okay, so let's talk about a few of those. So first let's talk about this idea of speaking up effectively. I call it communicating with oomph. So here's what's happening. We have finally arrived. We're sitting at the meeting table with our equal peers, men. But somehow we're not speaking up as frequently as they are. And you have to speak up. When you speak up, you're noticed. And when you speak up, you're valued. So one of the things I do with the women I work with is I ask them to make a commitment to speak up at every women, at, excuse me, at every meeting. Now some of them will say to me, hey, I have nothing brilliant to say and I don't want to waste air time like the men. And I say, if you have nothing brilliant to say, then at least commit to asking a solid question at every meeting. Because if you think about it, meetings are typically about what, like problems and solutions? So there's many opportunities to ask questions. If you ask about the problem, how bad is it? How much exactly do we stand to lose? What's the downside if we do nothing? And you can also address the solution. So what will we gain if we go this way? What will we save? So one of the many tips I include in the glass elevator is how to assert yourself, speak up, communicate with ump simply by asking a pointed strategic question. So in other words, make your presence known. Yes, you must. Because if they walk out of the meeting and they don't know that you were there, then they don't know that you were there, and you certainly are not going to be able to get on the glass elevator. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If we adopt some of the language from the world of product marketing, we can think of ourselves as brands. Brands want to be chosen, right? We want to be chosen. Why? Because we want to do more valuable work. We want to contribute in bigger ways. And when we're noticed, we're given that opportunity to do more. Do you find that when women do speak up, because you are an executive coach and, and people come to you and obviously they talk about the issues or the problems they have when they are sitting at the table with their, their equals, uh, are they taken seriously? Uh, do If they're sitting there, let's say, with predominantly men, are they, is what they have to say or are the questions they ask dismissed do they, when they actually do speak up? Or is that not the problem? It's just the problem that they tend not to say anything. Right. When you communicate impactfully, you are taken seriously. And one of the things I offer in the glass elevator is some formulas to easily communicate with oomph. Uh, formulas for communicating an update. Even formulas to ask a question so you don't seem ignorant or out of the loop. I think it's also how you say it, don't you? I mean, mm. like even just the, you may, women tend to say something that may be really important, but their voices tend to be high pitched. They say it perhaps hesitatingly, hesitantly. Um, they, it's 
the way they present themselves, even though the content may be really, really important. So isn't that a piece of it as well? Absolutely. In my chapter, Strut Your Stuff, one of the things I talk about is powering up your voice. So things like volume make a difference, your rate and your pitch. Articulation makes a difference. How you structure your sentences makes a difference. Um, So those are all things that I address in my book. How do you fundamentally and tangibly power up your presence? When you power up your presence, or it does also, I'm going to add another piece to that. What about the way you wear your hair or the t- clothes you decide to, that you choose to wear? Does that make a difference? Absolutely, because people very much react to your presence. Uh, so things that we have to think about in strutting our stuff is powering up our dress, our moves, our face, our hands, our voice, uh, because people will react to those things. All right, so it's really important and I keep saying you have to make your presence known, and it also has to be made in a very positive way. You've given us several suggestions that are in the book. Um, let's go to that one about the, um, you mentioned earlier, growing networks. Mm-hmm. Just not, will you say in the book, it's not just growing networks and paying attention that you have to be networking, but you have to do it strategically. What do you mean by that? Right. Um, I, I call it in the glass elevator called grow your tribe. So let me talk a little bit about that. Women in particular neglect networking. We tend to favor a few relationships of depth over a broad network. And we're also so darn busy, right? And to succeed professionally, we have to extend our networks both inside the company and outside our companies. Now, a lot of books offer ways just to grow quantity. Quantity is in right now, you know, the number of followers, the number of connections. Um, a lot of books offer ways to just to grow quantity, and I focus a little bit more on quality. So I give my readers a way to assess gaps in six fundamental areas of need, because we all have different needs, right? Uh, we may need expertise. We may need feedback, support, influence, validation. Sometimes we just need to be energized by others. So I have a way that you can assess gaps in six different areas, so that you can grow your tribes more strategically and spend less time doing it. So how does social networking fit into this? Because it seems to me that would change everything. Um, Social networking, I think, is important in this day and age. But again, we don't all need the same size uh, social network. Uh, It depends. Clearly, people who are selling things or developing a broad media platform need to have a lot of followers, a lot of connections, a lot of likes. They need to reach a very broad audience. We're not all in that boat. Some of us need smaller but stronger tribes. Uh, So some of us don't need millions of followers, but we do need a solid network. Give us an example of of a, a profession or a business where we would need maybe a smaller network, but it has to be stronger and, and really solidified. Right. Um, a lot of studies have been done with some top executives, and if you look at their, their, their strongest network, it's typically made up of 12 to 18 people. That's surprising this day and age, isn't it? Um, what's interesting when you look at the network is that it has diversity. So one of the things you want to strive for when you're building your tribe is diversity. We think, oh, we want to move up in the workplace. We need all power players in our tribes. No. Uh, we need people from different walks of life. Uh, we need people who offer us different things. So at the core of our network is this inner tribe of 12 to 18 people. Most of us need that, right? After that, in terms of our goals, in terms of where we're going, in terms of the reach we want to have, uh, then we can begin using social media more actively to kind of grow our reach. 
So when women are, when you are coaching executive women, um, I assume obviously these are the the key points that they seem to that they need help with. Um, how do you start with them? I mean, and it, does it make a difference in terms of what the the Fortune 100 company is? What, what you know, or obviously, or what kind of a position they want to achieve? CFO, CEO. Are there differences in terms of like having to grow? You know, the kinds of networks that they grow, or how to communicate, or well, I think you're asking, you know, is, is there one formula for for everyone, or do yeah. different people need different things? Yeah, um, yeah, I do think so. I mean, one of the benefits of uh, one-on-one executive coaching is that you can customize uh, the coaching to the given uh, woman. But what I do in the glass elevator is I offer a very broad, you know, a broad tool set or toolkit, you can think of it as, uh, so that women professional women at many different levels will find something that will help them personally soar professionally. So in the book, in the glass elevator, you ha- it's all in there, and then we can pick and choose what, you know, what fits our particular situation is what you're it, saying as women? Yeah, exactly. And there was one other thing. That, you, you, we, well, it's in the book, but reframing our self-promotion. We have to promote ourselves as women, and women aren't particularly good at that because we feel yeah. like we're bragging. We don't like to brag. Mm-hmm. We don't want to seem like we're just, you know, too narcissistic. I mean, there are a lot of definitions we have for that, but we have to self-promote. We do. And, How and do we women, do that? generally speaking, hate the idea of tooting their own horns. Uh, women think of that as kind of distasteful or bragging. Uh, so I ask women, what if we found an easy way for you to do more good work for more people? Would that be interesting to you? Now, that's an easy answer. They say, of course. So I kind of reframe that idea of tooting your own horn. I call it find the me in team. And the first step is really the reframing. Promoting your good work is an excellent way to communicate exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it uniquely, and how it has a positive impact on the people around you. And when you do that, you're called upon to do more of it in bigger ways. We women are great at shining the spotlight on others, and that's important. But the most successful executives I know know how to amplify their own best brand attributes so that they're called on to do more of what they love to do. And as a result, they're soaring. They're taking that glass elevator to the top. Or I always ask this question, or very often ask the question, are there differences, and we've talked about some of the differences between men and women, are there differences in the generations? For instance, the baby boomers, Gen X, the millennials, Generation Y, and then there's the younger ones too, but uh, in terms of, of women. And let's take this example of promoting yourself. Because it seems to me when I look at younger women in their 20s and 30s, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of difficulty promoting themselves in the same way perhaps that the baby boomer women do. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I see is they don't always notice at a young age the importance of promoting themselves. Um, they, they forget that you have to do a little bit of the hard work to get noticed, that it's not that easy. Uh, so I think women of all ages uh, need that confidence uh, to stand up and to assert themselves and actually talk about their successes and achievements. Let's talk about salaries in women. How, what, where are we now? You know, I read different statistics about women still don't make the same amount of money that men do in the same positions. Is, is that true in some of these Fortune 100 companies and why not? Uh, the gap is definitely narrowing, and while women still make up a, a small percentage of CEOs, we're moving into that upper management level at a very fast pace, and we're succeeding. I mean, if you think of it, of it so many of us can tick off 
the names of the female CEOs. And it's not just because there are few, it's because there are. Uh, you know, if you asked several of us 10 years ago to tick off names of female CEOs, we would have stuttered. Uh, and uh, I experience women in the upper ranks every day. They're terrific, terrific leaders. They're terrific role models to others. Uh, change takes time, and change is happening. Uh, that's good to hear. Um, and I guess this kind of leads me into my next question. Do you think, uh, you know, you're an executive coach and you do it for both men and women. It would seem to me, given some of the qualities that we've discussed in women, that women would be probably more um, willing to engage an executive coach and listen to what you have to say and 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 follow. I, I don't I, I, the process of executive coaching. I just wanted you to touch on that for a little bit and uh, how women you know warm up to you or you know it would seem to me that this kind of fits more into their psyche than men. Uh, well, I find that that both uh, men and women are equally receptive to opportunities to grow. Uh, one of the advantages I have with women is they kind of feel like I'm walking in their shoes, that I've experienced some of the challenges. So they do open up about the, the challenges, unique challenges they face as women in the workplace. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing to connect over. The process of engaging an executive coach how do you do that how long does it last are you is it just let's say you know someone's listening to the show and they would be interested in not only reading your book but um you know having the services of an executive coach how long does that last i mean is it yeah right well first let me clarify something because a lot of people don't know exactly what an executive coach, coach is. is uh right i am actually hired by companies to work with their senior executives. I help senior executives enhance their leadership presence, their ability to engage, connect, and influence in the workplace. But it's the company that actually hires me, right? So it's yeah. an investment on part of the company. Uh, typically, I work with the senior executives anywhere from six months to one year. So it's a pretty intensive personal journey of reflection, of, of action as well. So companies are willing to employ you uh, for six months to a year to coach their executive women. That says something about how they view, in a positive way, uh, their, uh, their women uh, executives because they want your services to help them to, to go up that, uh, the glass elevator. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's an investment, and it's an investment that, that pays off. How did I- you get into this? I started my career in marketing. I spent about six years in marketing, and I realized then that I was not that interested in how many products flew <laughs> off the shelves. I found myself far more interested in how people communicated and led in the workplace. That was much more fascinating uh, to me. Uh, so uh, I made that career change that many people love to make. And I started as a communication coach. I was doing corporate training in the area of communication. I was coaching executives for critical presentations and investor pitches. And while I was coaching in the area of communication, I got really interested in the broader issue of leadership. Communication is only one piece of it. And I knew there were other pieces that made up successful leadership. And that's when I kind of transitioned to the leadership coaching. And through that work, I uncovered the nine must-have skills that correlate with leadership success. Well, then we didn't mention uh, all nine uh, leadership skills. Uh, let's talk about a couple of those. Right. So we've, we've spoken about a few of them. Um, the nine 
skills are actually represented in the glass elevator is nine chapters, uh, a little bit tweaked for, for the female audience. Um, they're communicate with oomph, strut your stuff, listen like a leader, there's buddy up with your boss, tango with your team and grow your tribe, and finally, increase your influence, find the me in team, and be happy. Okay, well, we covered many of those, right? but there's one that I'd like to just, we have a couple more minutes left. What about listen like a leader? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Right. Um, Women actually have a tremendous advantage in this area. We're stronger than men in the area of empathy. So listen like a leader is not only to enhance your comprehension, but it's also to deeply understand others and to communicate that understanding. And we all kind of know, oh, gosh, we need to listen better, or we want someone else to listen better, but we don't know what it means to do that. We can't keep our mouths shut for, shut for long, can we? So we actually break it down into a science in the book with actually how you can listen more actively as a leader. I all right, let's take that one, because I think do. that's so important. I mean, as I'm interrupting you and not listening, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to know. Break that down for us. How do you listen like a leader? Okay. You so start? Here's the deal. It doesn't mean you need to be quiet. People think listening means you need to keep your mouth shut. There are many ways that you can talk while you listen, right? One, for example, is to ask questions. I talked about that earlier. Ask questions for clarity. Ask questions to probe more deeply, right? One way that you can listen as a leader and still talk is to paraphrase, to make sure that the person you're talking to knows that you get it, right? So you can paraphrase, you can, you can summarize. So These are similar kinds of things that you do as a therapist as well. Perhaps, you know, it's a different context, but as you're talking about paraphrasing, making sure you're understanding where the client is coming from, what they're saying, um, that you're interpreting it correctly, and by asking, as you say, the right kinds of questions. So that's right. just as important in the corporate Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the skills that a therapist, you know, brings uh, are the skills that a coach brings and are, and are the same skills that a, that a successful leader brings. So the art of asking questions, the art of paraphrasing and summarizing, also the art of empathizing. So not only just kind of kicking back, then I kind of get the content, I get the facts, I get the data, but I understand the emotion of where you are sitting, where, are you, where you are coming from right now. And when you have that level of listening, not only do you comprehend, but you understand what direction you need to move in. All right. So in other words, you're going to make, as a leader, you're going to make better choices, better decision-making choices within the company. And uh, if you understand, obviously, if you, if you listen and you understand what you're your uh, who, who you're talking to in in the, in the uh, corporate uh, communication situation, I guess, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you're going to make better choices, better decisions, better leadership decisions. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we know the expression. Uh, you know, we have two ears for a reason, right? <laughs> uh, and sometimes we only use one, so it's time to kind of kick in both ears. So we should listen twice as much as we speak if we're a good leaders. Right, let's talk about where we can buy the book because we've got a couple minutes left. The Glass Elevator, a guide to leadership, presence for women on the rise. Uh, or yes, a stool. Can, yeah. Yes. Uh, you can purchase The Glass Elevator on Amazon.com. One thing I want to note to all the people listening in is that all proceeds go to Dress for Success. Dress for Success is a nonprofit that helps 
women who are economically disadvantaged. Uh, so as we strengthen ourselves, one of the best things we can do is strengthen our peers as well. That's great. I had seen that. I was, uh, I guess, on one of your websites, and you're, you're all over the net. Also, if you want to uh, listen to you again, there, you have several pieces on YouTube also. Yeah, um, the way you can get to, to all my videos, and, and everything is free. I'm, I'm very passionate about helping you. So you can go to my website, oracoaching.com, O-R-A-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G, oracoaching.com. Uh, I have videos. I have free downloads for your iPads all to help you power up your leadership presence. Do you have an app? Uh, it's an okay. interactive iBooklet downloadable for to your iPad. I have one called Communicate with Impact, and I have one called Be a Confident Negotiator. Well, it's been great having you on the show today, and uh, I'll mention the book again, The Glass Elevator, A Guide to Leadership Presence for Women on the Rise. And uh, as Orr and I have just been talking about, you can go on the net, you can see her on YouTube, you can download all of this information and i think one of the night really and it's terrific that you, all the proceeds for this book are going for dress for success mm-hmm. it's a great organization well that has to do with the question i asked you you do still have to dress for success as well as following all these other skills that you've told us about today yeah it's one piece of the formula one piece of the formula exactly thanks so much for being on the show thank you Catherine. have a great day yep you too I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As I said, listen to us every Wednesday live, 9 to 10. 10, It's 10 to 11 Eastern. Um, And uh, you can download us at the end of the day and listen to the show anytime you want. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.